lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf, filling out mock drafts leading up to the actual draft in April, filling out March Madness brackets that are going to be dumpster fires within the first weekend of the tournament here. But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Whether you're hosting game day or movie night, DiGiorno knows that planning a wash party on a budget isn't easy. You need the perfect setting, the perfect squad, and the perfect eats. Luckily, you're a game time mastermind, and you know that grabbing DiGiorno Classic Crust Pizza can bring home a dub because it's packed with half a pound of cheese, sauce, and other toppings and comes at an incredible price. Make the game-winning call and grab a DiGiorno Classic Crust Pizza from the grocery store today. It's not delivery, it's DiGiorno. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Michael Jr. That is me, with me as always, a man who is, I hope, having a better Monday morning than members of the Indianapolis Football Colts. Brandon, what's going on? I am, Mike. I am. I'm doing well, uh, but my my team didn't cover, so there's that. Yeah, nope. It was it was that kind of weekend, man. But I, again, I, I will struggle to find a group of people that are dismayed as. Colts fans are team members in the fourth quarter alone of that Sunday night football game last night. It was 21 to 19 at the start of the fourth quarter, Brandon. <laughs> 21 to 19. <laughs> 20 minutes later, out of hand. Entirely out of hand. The final score of that game for people that like went to bed a little early or passed out during the third quarter of that game is going to be one of the more confusing experiences. How a team managed to score 50, 54 minus 23. 33 points in the fourth. 33 points. God, I almost said 23. Jesus, I'm sorry, Notre Dame. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't know about the third quarter. I don't want to speak on it, but it was 33 points in the fourth. You no, know, it definitely was because that's what twenty one fifty four minus twenty one is. But uh, your boy is out here struggling today, and again, not nearly as much as the uh, Colts offensive players struggled to hold on to the football. I saw people actually feeling bad for Jeff Saturday. Like people were like, he was at home being a family man before this. He was at home enjoying his time, and then hello darkness, my old fourth quarter this weekend. So I didn't, I don't know how I felt about how uh, Mike Tirico and uh, Collinsworth talked about Jeff Saturday, your old, your old teammate. Well, I mean, I think they just talked pretty candidly about how surprising it was to see a guy who had been their peer in the media in that coaches meeting. Cause it like, it's just, you know how you, you have everyone that you're used to seeing in their proper setting, right? I've seen a lot of people equate stuff like this to 
when you see your teacher outside of class as a kid in high school and you yes. hear someone call them by their first name or reference, yes. like you see them with a drink in their hand and all of a sudden you're just confused contextually about where this person is. I'm sure for Mike Tirico and for Chris Collinsworth, who have been doing this for a long time, who, you know, uh, just seeing Jeff in that context in the coaches meetings that they're used to going into with the coaches of the football teams is probably a little jarring. Yeah, I just don't know if it needed to be talked about on the broadcast about how other coaches weren't too happy about it, but it, it is what it is. And the Colts are, uh, they're not bad. But surprisingly, I think that's why people are kind of pissed off. Well, and I think that's going to be the tough part to remember for some people coming off last night is, and now it's a four-quarter game, and in the fourth quarter of that game, they had an epic meltdown, and so you don't get three-quarters credit. You don't get partial credit for going yes. out there. They are one and three since Jeff Saturday took over now after that shocking win in Las Vegas the very first weekend where you had Matt Ryan coming back to the field in a way that people didn't anticipate, and so there are going to understandably be questions about performance, but yeah. Yeah, through the vast majority of that game, that was a really close football game, and they had really frustrated the Dallas Cowboys on offense uh, prior to that, and then it was gone. Uh, now, we do have a, a great uh, rest of the show for you guys today yes. here uh, on a Monday outside of the performance of that one quarter. Um College football playoff committee did their thing. We don't normally talk about a lot of college football on Monday. Save that for Tuesday. But you had the committee do their final round of rankings on Sunday before the 1 o'clock games got going. So we've got that field set. We have got uh, Deion Sanders taking the job that neither of us thought Deion Sanders was going to take. Yep. Uh, and uh, we also got, I think, some pretty big shakeups. We got Monday Roses to give out as well here. But, Brandon... Uh, Coming into today, I had expected, based on what we knew going into the Sunday slate, we had an awesome round of games set up. We talked about it. The Eagles-Titans game ended up being a little bit of a disappointment. Philly took care of that one pretty soundly. Yep. Um, but the afternoon window was one of those golden age, golden eras of the Red Zone channel where you got to that 4 o'clock window and the finishes were just batshit every direction you looked Scott Hansen's whipping this thing around all the different games and it felt wonderful and going into this weekend I figured we were going to come out on the other side as we started to think what we're talking about today looking at the 49ers and the Bengals and talking about who was a bigger threat to their you know division to their conference down the stretch because I think you have two teams that are occupying a really similar space one based off defense, but that gets strong performance from its offense, and one based on an offense that gets strong performance from its defense. And the injury to Jimmy Garoppolo kind of clouds that picture, I think, as we start to look at this. For anyone that missed it, Jimmy Garoppolo, the Niners quarterback, early uh, in their game this weekend, it was 11 minutes and 22 seconds into the first quarter, took a hit from Jerome Baker and Jalen Phillips in the backfield and ended up injuring his foot, uh, breaking his foot, and it will require season-ending surgery uh, for Jimmy G. Which, first off, like I know we've all had a lot of discourse about Jimmy G., and yes. his role and his station in that team and what kind of quarterback he is or isn't, this sucks flat out. Yes. Like, this is incredibly an incredibly depressing blow to the 49ers season and to Jimmy Garoppolo, who we've talked about, all-time vibes teammate and a guy that I know this team really rallied around. Yeah, Mike, it was tough to see. 
tough to see he him go down, you know, because he was very important to that offense. But after seeing what Brock Purdy came out there and did, Mike, I'm starting to feel like that stuff that you say about Tua and all and the stuff you say about G, Jimmy G and all the weapons around him looks like I think the 49ers might be okay without him. Well, the reason they might be, and I guess that's the question, is are the 49ers still the same caliber of Super Bowl contender, dangerous team without Jimmy G? I, I would have to say, like, that takes a big hit now, right? Like, if you're the Eagles, if you're the Cowboys, if you're these other teams at the top of the NFC, this is, you know... It's not good news. You obviously don't want Jimmy Garoppolo to be hurt, but it has severely weakened this team because while Brock Purdy went out and performed really well in this game, the rookie, the uh, or I forget if he's a rookie this year. I believe um, so. But uh, he was Mr. Irrelevant in the draft. He was the very last pick of the NFL draft. Got thrown into this game and performed pretty admirably uh, for the most part in this one, Brandon. And I say that, I mean, somewhat surprised. A quarterback picked at that point in the draft is not one that you expect to, one, see the field, and yes. two, help his team win when he did. And we know most of this game was about what the 49ers did on defense. That group was suffocating and really bothered Tua Tungavailoa for most of the afternoon. Fred Warner was a menace in the middle of the field. Nick Bosa had three sacks in this game. Ooh. And so it certainly paved the way on the other side. Brock Purdy finished 25 of 37 for 210, two touchdowns and one interception. He got sacked three times. And so a lot of that sounds like what would happen when you've got a young player in there, especially the three sack portion of things. The interception came very early in him being out there. It was 10, 10. Uh, he tried to, he threw a bad back shoulder ball that ended up getting picked off. And you thought, all right, this might could spiral a little bit for a young player who was going out there and trying to make it happen. And Brandon, I got to say, I was very impressed by, the poise when you looked at how the 49ers managed to get out ahead of this one like I think it always starts and I think it's very interesting the effect that two minute drills have on young players especially young mm. quarterbacks you saw him go down there and execute in a two minute drill made that big I thought his best throw of the day was in that two minute drill around midfield when he ripped that ball under pressure to George Kittle in the middle of the field for the first down um, right. executed well against the blitz in the red zone. And so they managed to go down and get points off that. Um, but overall, man, like, I don't know. What did you think of Brock Purdy's performance? And did it make you feel better about the 49ers situation? I'll say this for a guy who got thrown out there and was not ready. Cause we talked a couple times last week about preparing to go into a game and knowing that you're going to go into a game yeah. versus being thrown out there. I think he did a good job, Mike. I mean, he looks like a freshman in high school, um, but I think that he's got a little something to him. And you always got to trust the defense and what the defense says, Mike, because I thought Fred Warner after the game told me everything I needed to know when it comes to them going forward. Uh, obviously, he knows that team is led by he himself, uh, Nick Bosa, you know, uh, Jimmy Ward, everyone else on that on that defense. But he said that Brock Purdy has that it. 
and he always runs two minute drills on Friday Friday's practice when the mainly thing the main thing they do is two minute drills. And he says he takes pride in defeating that defense the same way that defense takes pride in stopping Brock Purdy because he's got the it factor. He says you could just see when he walks around the locker room, he just knows that he's got it. And he said he's always chirping in his ear during those drills because he knows Brock Purdy can take it. So I, there's something about that, Mike. And as someone who is I got really close with Tommy Reese uh, when I was a nose guard, scout team nose guard, dealing with the starting offensive line a, a lot during uh, my senior year at Notre Dame. Like, I, I understand that relationship of that respect between the two. So, if – and I don't think Fred Warner is a capper. Like, he's not just saying stuff to the media. If he has anything to say, he won't say it at all. Like, the fact that he feels confident with Brock Purdy tells me everything I need to know. And even if he was a little bit, that's smart business, right? To gas up your True. young teammate who's now going to be in a leadership role for the rest of this season. But I think you're right. There is that notion of, all right, well, one, he's gone against that defense on a consistent basis since he got into the NFL. That is going to automatically be something that during training camp, during practice, during the week, you're getting reps against one of the best defenses in the NFL. The other part is, I mean, you go back and look at what he did as a quarterback at Iowa State, and if anyone is unfamiliar with Iowa State, watch that game yesterday, they go, wow, Brock Purdy, they let him continue to whip the ball and throw that thing around. He operated an offense that has a ton of shifting and motion, motioning there. We know the 49ers are known for having a lot of big skill bodies that are interchangeable, right? George Kittle um, and uh, Kyle Juszczyk in that you know big skill room there, obviously bringing Debo and Christian McCaffrey into the backfield. That's all the stuff that he did at Iowa State. In Matt Campbell's mm. Iowa State program, their offense was more as much or more shifting in motion than any team in college football a reliance on tight ends is a big part of what they did especially when Brock Purdy was the quarterback and so as far as a fit going into this just based on what he was asked to do in that offense and the style that they played in it's not altogether unsurprising Brees Hall was his running back so lord knows Thank he's you. used to having an extremely dynamic presence in his backfield also yeah, I was uh, – so Brock Purdy was my fantasy football – college fantasy football pick, and I was thinking to myself, I was like, he had a great running back at the time too. What, who was that? Yeah. Brees Hall. Brees Hall, Charlie Kohler, who's an NFL guy, was one of the tight ends in his room. They had a few of them in there. They were a team that had a stingy defense. Like, structurally, Iowa State had, while for, you know, format-wise, very different. They played a different style of defense offensively. Mm -hmm. They certainly weren't as complex as what Kyle's running. The point is, he's used to having to shoulder that load from the neck up. And so you saw the mechanics of being the quarterback in that offense for him. Because, Brandon, going along the game, they did a bunch of that stuff that we were all looking for when you got Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel into the backfield together, right? They'd bring yeah. Debo in at running back. They'd motion Christian in from slot receiver. They would flip the two at the start of a play. They would send one of them out on motion. They put Debo in the backfield in a couple of protection reps on rollouts. They did all of that high-level, complicated chess match stuff with a quarterback who got thrown into that game in the first quarter, not thinking he was going to be the guy. So one, you have someone who actually is a backup, did the thing we always hear about, which is prepare like a starter so you can go out there and execute if your number's called. But they did not really have to tailor down the playbook much at all for him. That's what I thought was most interesting, Mike, is that it didn't look like the game plan changed at all. And you would imagine with 
I don't maybe it's consistent with NFL quarterbacks because I think we saw the same thing out of Snoop uh, Huntley when uh, he took over for Lamar Jackson in the first quarter. Uh, that that offense kind of they didn't do it. They weren't as successful, obviously, and that's why I think the big difference is for the 49ers and what we saw here with Brock Purdy. Yeah, I, I think with Tyler Huntley though, like we've seen him go out there and do that, and he's been in that organization for a little bit, so he's got some understanding yeah. of that. With Brock Purdy, we just really didn't know. We hadn't seen him. He hasn't been there all that long, and so it felt a little more like I had a, like I had a lot of confidence. I remember last year, I thought someone was going to potentially try and come poach Tyler Huntley from that team because he had played right. so well when Lamar Jackson had gone down. With Brock right. Purdy, we didn't know that, and part of that also is going to go to the defense. Like it is going to have its war going forward because now there's going to be tape on this young player and when he yes. gets thrust into a game you know who else hasn't seen him play a bunch before the Miami Dolphins defense who certainly struggled now part of that was also 49ers offensive line I thought kicked ass in this game they were able to roll Miami off the True. ball very consistently throughout that day he does have and leaned heavily on the great skill players on his team there were some plays mm. where you could tell kind of locked in on Debo kind of locked in on George Kittle and locking in on those guys and saying I am a, as a young person going to force feed them the ball is pretty good business overall so uh, yeah. Brandon, they're definitely still deadly because this game they won by being a great defensive team and having an offense that made timely plays. This was the formula, and this is kind of what we've always said about Kyle Shanahan is his offense can be this universal solvent for quarterbacks who are coming in. It definitely takes them from a team that even with Jimmy Garoppolo, for all the conversation I had you know, about Jimmy Garoppolo's top-end skill level, they were a team that could absolutely make a Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo. We've got physical proof of that already and what they had done before, but now this knocks them down, I think, certainly to a level below that, where this is still a team that we probably expect, especially in an extended NFC playoff, off uh to be a playoff you know they're still first in the division right now and the Seahawks yeah. have looked a little bit more vulnerable than they did at the start of the season and that includes yesterday where they were in a shootout with a Rams Man. team that's got nothing and nobody left healthy outside of Bobby Wagner and Jalen Ramsey who it see that seemed to be enough hey. yesterday <laughs> yeah if, if, if the backup Rams defense is good enough to make Geno Smith and Kenneth Walker the third right. fight on the sidelines like something's going on over there. Right, I can say if it's getting spicy there because John Wolford and that Rams offense are able to keep <laughs> you in this game while the rest of those guys will them over, then yeah, that's still a division that is infinitely winnable for the 49ers, but it definitely got a lot tougher now, and I think you definitely have to downgrade them from Super Bowl contender to NFC playoff team at this point. And that's the respect for that defense, right? Because my God, like we'll talk about the other side of this. Like This was one of Tua's worst games so far this season as a quarterback. I think because of that defense, though, Mike, I think after seeing just how – rattled Tua was actually after that early touchdown you're like oh maybe Jimmy G is this good because he has to raise his level at practice every day just to compete yeah and I think that's the one thing that I want to make clear is now Tua ended up stat line again another one that you'd look at at the end and go 18 to 33 for 295 yards two touchdowns but two interceptions three sacks mm -hmm. a lot of those yards coming late as they tried to rally this was a game where just throwing wise he was off I think a lot of the pressure early got to him and so there were some errant passes that hadn't normally been there to had been an extremely accurate quarterback for most of the season 
But then you start to peel back the onion deeper, and they were down three starters on the offensive line, including both their starting tackles. Uh, Teron Armstead, who was another one of their important offseason free agent acquisitions, had this team in a compromised spot, and Nick Bosa had all three of the 49ers sacks uh, in this mm. game. And But it that unit is also just terrifying. Like We always talk about the defensive front for them, Front four, uh, excuse me, Fred Warner and that linebacker room are an yes. absolute terror. Like when you yes. look at how fast that group is and what they are able to do, him and Dre Greenlaw. I mean, really, and I saw Nate Tyson, a couple of guys posting the um, the passing chart, kind of like the shooting chart for an NBA player right. of Tua Tungavailoa during this game, and you can see this massive void in the middle of the field, and Ooh. everyone was just pasting Fred Warner's picture over the middle of that field because that's what he does, and that's how much of an effect on the field that he has down in and down out. And so for Tua to have his most difficult game against a defense that thus far might be the most potent threat that they've faced is not overly surprising. Well... The first interception that Tua threw in 193 attempts, Mike, he had the record for the Miami Dolphins for uh, consecutive passes without being intercepted, intercepted, was that Jimmy Ward uh, interception between the numbers. Like, it, it, he tried to get one in between the numbers, and it got picked off. Yeah, it well, th and that one was super interesting, too, because you even look within the body of that play. Jimmy Ward, you could see before the play, hit Fred Warner was like motioning over to him because Ty, uh, uh, I think it was whoever was in a running back had gone into motion, and so Jimmy was late going over there. That running back took a route up the sideline that looked like a wheel route where normally you're yes. thinking, oh, they've got him, and that might have been what Tua and company were thinking as well, but then that gets passed off, and now Jimmy Ward what might have looked like man defense before turned into zone and Jimmy Ward's just sitting there Superman diving over one of his teammates for an interception. Like it's high degree of difficulty stuff for a quarterback right. that also was under duress for a fair amount of that day. And so I'm not one to overreact what I'm saying as to what we saw right. with Tua here. I think more often than not, he's been very good this season, but I think in this game, we got the reminder of why the 49ers are so scary because they took that offense and they were able to effectively really hold them under most of what we're used to seeing. Yeah, Mike, and they also were able to just um, – the th those passes that Tua throws that just seem like – it's the stuff that makes me question Tua, that interception we're talking about. He was falling to the ground when he threw that ball. Just tuck that thing and take the sack. Yeah, there were a couple of those YOLO balls that definitely started to to make you scratch your head a bit. But again, I'm not going to lose a ton of sleep over that with Miami. I think for the most, like, you know, Jalen Waddle, nowhere to be found. One catch for nine yards in this game. So yeah. give credit to the 49ers defense for saying, hey, we know one of y'all is going to eat. And we're going to make sure that the other is not bludgeoning us, too. But while we may have to downgrade the threat level on the 49ers, we got to raise the roof on uh, threat level Bengals right now because... Uh, Cincinnati went out and managed to do it again. The Bengals, uh, in what seems like a theme of the past year, beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, they did it in Cincinnati, Brandon. This one ends up being 27-24 Cincy. And all the things that we talked about going into this matchup for the Bengals ended up being true versus the best team in the AFC. This had been a team that was much improved along the offensive line and was able to do a much better job 
uh, protecting Joe Burrow during this game, according to ESPN Stats and Info. He was not pressured on 27 of his pass attempts, according to NFL Next Gen Stats, and was sacked just once in this game. And Brandon, we said they got that trial by fire against a much better Tennessee Titans one, even if it was a little bit banged up last week. And so going into this matchup, we said a lot was going to fall on what Chris Jones and this uh, uh, Chiefs defensive line were able to do. And the answer was not much in this game. Joe Burrow looked like Neo inside of the Matrix once the zeros and the ones started (laughs) clicking in because everything just felt very in control for him in a way that I knew and I know as we look around early in this week is going to lead to the now Joe Burrow MVP conversation that comes up. You could pencil it in. They had been playing better, but after those first couple games, no one was really watching. And then we got to the 425 kick where they didn't kick off with the rest of the window, so they were going to have the finish all by themselves. And that meant you get the pseudo primetime bump, and we were also going to have this matchup against Mahomes and the Chiefs, and all of these things combined together for narrative gold that was going to lead everyone back to a place we probably already should have been, which is Joe Burrow, who managed to hold down the fort while there were injuries all around that team. Jamar Chase just came back in this game. Joe Mixon still not back in that backfield for this team, and it did not matter, and he's been able to keep them and get them back into the position that feels eerily similar to where we were with Cincinnati last year. Still don't believe it, though. Like, I hear you. Because did anyone believe their eyes when they saw that the the Bengals were going to the Super Bowl? Like, I still have to see it again for me to actually believe it, Mike. Because, yes, Joe Burrow's dangerous. Yes, he's even more dangerous when Jamar Chase is in the lineup and he's deciding to use his legs to F people up. Like, yes, this is is standard. But also, that, like you talked about last week, that offensive line has finally showed up. I guess He was sacked once yesterday. But I guess that's what I mean is that's why it's easier for me to believe this time around is because, and I said this last year during their postseason run, that would be as bad as the Cincinnati Bengals were for the next few years because they went out and Mm. I think did, to me, one of the most interesting things about this game was I think that the Chiefs are the Bengals in like a year, right? Like looking into the future, just as far as how they've able to had to play and what they've gone out and done. Because remember, okay. after the Chiefs lost in the Super Bowl to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, what did they do? They went out and almost completely remade their offensive line, signed Orlando Brown at left tackle, drafted Creed Humphrey and Trey Smith on the offensive line as young players who ended up playing as rookies, and just hockey line changed that whole group out. What did the Bengals do after last year where they gave up an historic amount of sacks to Joe Burrow and ended up losing in the Super Bowl to the Rams? They went out and they completely, outside of their left tackle, Jonah Williams, completely replaced their offensive line. And they went through the growing pains early in the year associated with a group that had four new starters on it who hadn't played together before. It looked like that. And once they lost those first couple of games... That team got left alone, and they got allowed to go and work this stuff out. And now we're getting to a point coming into December football where it looks like they have worked it out pretty well. And that offensive line is actually something that we can point to, along with their defensive line that might be one of the more underrated ones in football with what they've been able to do. I mean, Sam Hubbard and Trey Hendrickson are certainly going to get the headlines. Trey was a big free agent acquisition for them. But you look at DJ uh, Reader in this inside, BJ Hill, like stout across the board 
forward. They've got some guys that can get after you. And then on the offensive side of the ball, your investments are starting to pay off. Your quarterback's being kept clean, and you were able to pry open room in the running game for Pirine, who's filled in really well for the absent right. Joe Mixon. And so all yeah. of that together, Brandon, is football with the foundations that we all expect to be a part of winning football. We hear all the time being built well on the lines of scrimmage, and now you get the cavalry back at the skill spots in the ways that showed up big time for them, and it feels like a lot more sustainable version of this Cincinnati thing that really started going off last year with Burrow at the helm. I hear you, Mike, but they beat Miami earlier on this season, and they had that same type of – I mean, they had the same roster, right? Like, is there anything to this legitimacy of Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals being the fact that they beat Patrick Mahomes, the the MVP favorite right now, and the best team in football, arguably second best if not in the Kansas City Chiefs? Like, I think there's a little bit of well, this yeah. beating Kansas City Chiefs it, it, that it, is, that is why we're like – It absolutely should matter okay. that way. Yes, I mean, that's, that's the whole point is they were on an upward trajectory already, and they were already a team that was getting starting to do better and better as of late. Like, they're the best team in the AFC North now. A lot of that is going to be a conversation about what Lamar Jackson's knee looks like, went down with yeah. a banged-up knee in that game, not supposed to be season-ending, but that was already an offense and a team that had been really underperforming. They got one of the ugliest wins I've ever seen against the Denver Broncos. That game was a hot pile of shit. I know we'll get to that in a little bit because that was one of your picks for this weekend. But yeah. they're in, like, in my mind, the Bengals are now in the driver's seat for the AFC North. That's their division to lose based off the way that they're playing. And yes, so this Kansas City game was going to be a test. They've now beaten Kansas City three times this year going back regular season and postseason. And so with all of that in mind, yes, this is absolutely about the fact that they went out there, Brandon, and it is just about what they have shown up and what has continued to show up for Kansas City, right? Kansas City had ample opportunities to win that game. Big balls to Valdez-Scantling. They ran the ball really well in this game. I saw um, Jeff Schwartz pointed out, got under center and ran outside zone with a bunch of great success. Isaiah Pacheco looked awesome again in the backfield for them. Yeah. And they won games the way that we're used to seeing them win games this season, right? Better play up front. Patrick Mahomes making some big timely throws to the varied weapons he's got on that team. But top end talent wise, that wide receiver room is hurting a little bit. And in the game yeah. where Travis Kelsey was held without a first half catch catch since I don't know how long, it showed up glaringly on the other side where you've got two legitimate number ones in T. Higgins and Jamar Chase that made plays time after time for that Bengals team. Joe Burrow's got more top-end talent to work with around him than Patrick Mahomes, and that showed up in the critical moments at the end of that game. T. Higgins with a get-off-me touchdown to start the game, and then T. Higgins yeah. with the get-off-me first down to end the game kind of shows you exactly the difference between these two teams. Yeah, I, but there's something about that uh, the Kansas City Chiefs defense, like in these moments when they shit the bed or don't come up with that big play, they just look so frail. They, they look like they can get pushed around a little bit. Like even Justin Reed, who seems to be, like you said, the the perfect heir apparent from to ter, uh, to the Honey Badger. It just feels like they they just they're just weak at times. And once the, once a team starts rolling on them, they really can't stop them. And obviously well, that's too like too big picture considering you know how many games they've actually lost. But I've seen this too many times with the Chiefs. I feel like. 
Well, and part of this is also we've seen in this matchup, and this is what we you know heard talked about. I heard Mina Kimes imploring Steve Spagnuolo, their defensive coordinator, don't man these guys up on critical downs and distances. But this is a coordinator that's got an identity, and I just don't think could help himself. And in certain spots, you still saw. Now, it's not to say they did it all the time. It wasn't like it was man up, all out, Wink Martindale shit all the time on defense. But <laughs> you still had a bunch of that show up. And this is a team that has gotten good production out of its young corners. Trent McDuffie was their first round pick. Josh Williams mm-hmm. is their. You know, they've got guys that have performed well, young players that have stepped up for them this season, but matched up with two of the best receivers in the NFL. And that's now how we're going to talk about T. Higgins, or should be, based on the way that he's performed this season and going back before that. That was just a matchup that the Bengals get the win on. And so for Kansas City, we're still, you know, still conversations about their D-line not being able to make a big enough impact, especially considering that Chris Jones is one of the best interior players in the NFL. Frank Clark was paid a bunch of that money. George Karloftis was drafted early. And the Bengals offensive line won that matchup more often than not on that day. And so it is right to look at that defense. But that's also kind of who they've always been, right? That defense has always been someone that's going to give you timely performance, but it's not been a dominant unit in Kansas City. Yeah, yeah. All, we we joked about this coming off the top of this conversation that the Joe Burrow MVP conversation that is coming is warranted. Like he played really right. well, ran really really well yesterday. Career high eleven carries for forty six yards and a rushing touchdown, and it just all looks very in control for him. Whether it's the checkdowns underneath, and that's another part of the Chiefs equation. And that comparison is defenses started playing them differently. And so Joe Burrow has adjusted. We saw multiple times when he was under pressure and when something did get close to him yesterday, it was either he also had enough protection elsewhere in the pocket to move and then take off running, had enough place in the pocket to move and then get the ball out to P. Ryan and get the ball out short in one of those check down modes. It just never looked like it did early in the season where it looked like Joe Burrow was finally seeing some of those ghosts that getting sacked 70 times the way he did last year may have been adding up in a guy that was starting to move a little bit too early or bail or didn't have the confidence in his group up front because it hadn't been earned yet and now just through the course of this season through the course of 14 weeks or whatever we're at now 13 weeks that confidence is back and the way that he's moving around in the pocket is really impressive considering this is a quarterback that was lost to a knee injury two years ago and got sacked as many times as he did. The fact that he is still operating that way in the pocket is why they call him Joe Shiesty because he's got such an like borderline irresponsible confidence for a player that has accomplished as much as he has. Well, I don't, this is probably a terrible comp, but he reminds me of Russell Wilson when he first got into the NFL. We will respect your arm and do what we need to to defend it. What what are you doing running the ball right now? Like it it seems like Joe Burrow when he decides to tuck it and run, the the defense are literally on their heels. They have no idea what to do with that. Well, because he's a little bit faster than you would anticipate, and he's a little bit more mobile than you would think he is. He's not like a he's I, I guess he is a dual threat guy. He's not like gonna take off and hurt you with it like Daniel Jones or Lamar Jackson right, or right. any of those guys, but. He's certainly capable in that area, and we saw that on full display. So, yeah, the Bengals, that is getting that is getting very legitimate very quickly and now has them as a team that, like, again, I, I think when it's all said and done and I'd have to look at the schedule to see how this is going to shake out, that seems like the team that could and should win the AFC North. 
and where we go from there, as this game also had a massive effect on the landscape overall with the Chiefs lost, the Bills are now the one seed again in the AFC, which is huge for that team that had weathered yeah. a little bit of that midseason storm, especially inside their division. And uh, so the, the Bengals absolutely going to have a massive effect on the outcome of this season in the AFC. We're, we're going to see them in the playoffs making somebody's life a living hell at the rate they're going because, again, the way they've built the house this time around is with a much sturdier foundation. Absolutely, Mike, but they do have to get out of the AFC North first. In the last game of the season, January 8th, they play the Ravens. And uh, I think that like this is it's going to be important. And obviously they got the Bills and the Patriots before they get out of here. So they, they could be in a position to really do that whole uh, – getting better as the playoffs are starting thing, which is really scary too. Yeah, terrifying to think. And they've already, again, had to weather some of the injury stuff there. Obviously, that's got a hold. We know that's always a factor. But if it does, man, this team uh, charging up the special beam cannon at just the right time. <laughs> um, Whether you're hosting game day or movie night, DiGiorno knows that planning a watch party on a budget isn't easy. You need the perfect setting, the perfect squad, and the perfect eats. Luckily, you're a game time mastermind, and you know that grabbing DiGiorno Classic Crust Pizza can bring home a dub because it's packed with half a pound of cheese, sauce, and other toppings, and comes at an incredible price. Make the game winning call and grab a DiGiorno Classic Crust Pizza from the grocery store today. It's not delivery, it's DiGiorno. Brandon, uh, it is Monday around here. Um, that means that we give out some roses on this show. Um, Bachelor and Bachelorette love. We each get two yes. roses to give out to deserving winners from over the weekend before we get to some college football talk here. Uh, who do you want to start off and give your first rose to? I feel like I went first last week, so I want to give you uh, the floor <sighs> to hand your rose out to a deserving winner from this weekend. Christian Watson. Mm. Will you accept this rose? Mike, the rookie right receiver from the Green Bay Packers that helped Aaron Rodgers reclaim his ownership over the Chicago Bears and also the uh, most winningest franchise in NFL history now with uh, 700, what was it, 737 wins, I believe, uh, after beating the, the Bears the first time in 100 years that the, that the Bears are no longer the most winningest franchise after this win. Uh, but back to Christian Watson. He had three receptions for 38 yards and a touchdown nope. and a 46-yard rushing touchdown. He has eight touchdowns in his last four games, Mike. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. It looks like the reason they got – when they got rid of Devontae Adams and everybody was looking at him sideways, this feels like the other shoe falling, if that makes sense. Like, oh, they had a serious weapon that could do – that could be a game breaker. We just had to get him acclimated into the football field. I think that the Packers have traditionally loved the long rangey athlete that Christian Watson is. He fits very much a type that they've had at wide receiver and they've done a good job of integrating him in the ways that he's used to. I, the first when I covered North Dakota state in the quarterfinals of the FCS playoffs last year and Christian Watson was dealing with a hamstring injury and didn't end up playing in that game. But I remember turning on tape for them and I'm like, man, North Dakota state usually just runs power until people pass out. They're throwing the ball a lot more. Part of that was, you know, going back and you could see some of the Trey Lance stuff that was built in there, but this was post-Trey. Right. 
that was, oh no, they've got a legitimate game breaker. And the first play I saw of him that made me go, oh, was an end around, kind of like the one that he scored on there where you just saw the combination of speed, fluidity, wiggle in the open field that makes right. him someone that's really dangerous there. Uh, seven receiving touchdowns on 23 career receptions. He joined Martavis Bryant from the Steelers back in 2014 as the only rookie wideouts in the last 25 years to have seven or more receiving TDs in their first 25 career receptions. So it's been efficient as of late. And this is what we always hoped for with this team was that him, Romeo Dobbs, this young receiver room that was asked to shoulder more of a load because of the departure of Devontae Adams would eventually grow up as the season's gone along. And isn't it amazing how after this, Aaron Rodgers is talking about how his thumb is almost a non-factor now and about how his ribs are really starting to feel a lot better too. Everything's starting to feel a lot better now because they started floating the notion that he might get shut down for the year and he's starting to see all this stuff pop up. Before this game, Christian Watson had, I think, 20% of his receptions were touchdowns. After this game, it like went up to 40%. Like he, It has to fall off at some point, but it's not yet. Yeah, but I, I think the the hope is that this is more indicative to the norm and that regression to the mean will be much better than we saw at the start of the season uh, right. for this Green Bay Packers receiving core. Great pick there. Uh, Brandon, my first rose uh, will go to uh, the Hayward brothers. Um, Cam nice. Hayward, Pittsburgh Steelers defensive captain, and his brother Connor, who's a rookie tight end for the Steelers as well, caught his first touchdown pass uh, on the road playing against the Atlanta Falcons. Special for those two guys um, because their dad was a longtime NFL fullback uh in large part with the Atlanta Falcons. Um, his dad played there for three years, rushed for over a thousand yards in 1995, was a pro bowler. And also, you know, as a lot of people may or may not know, tragically passed away um, after a battle with cancer in 2006 and is buried at Gwinnett Memorial Park um, where the two brothers went before the game. Uh, they talked about the day before Cam did going to visit his grave there before the game and making that trip and Cam saying how emotional he was when he saw his brother get in the end zone. He said, I was really glad the cameras weren't on me because I was a mess over on the sideline. He was wearing his dad's mm. jersey in the postgame press conference. And already you've got two guys. We've seen a lot of brothers get to play with each other in the NFL, and that's always a, a really cool experience. But to see how much it meant to these guys to go – and be able to honor their dad and to go and be close to him in the lead up to that game as they're getting to experience this now as brothers and his teammates on this level this season is was really touching and, and really cool. And I'm really happy for those guys. You know, Cam was a guy I got to know briefly and, have, you know, see every once in a while these events and just one of the true good guys in the NFL. And so to see this moment for him and his brother was special. Yeah, it really was. A beautiful catch, too. It was yeah. like, you know, he had to drag the foot back at the end zone type of stuff. He's he's all of six foot as a tight end. Uh, first touchdown, obviously, uh, in his career. They're from Georgia. It had to be more mean more than we can ever even imagine. Absolutely. Who you got for your yeah. second rose, Brandon? Well, we are very, very loud Ooh. when the Lakers are bad. Ooh. And tend to be kind of quiet, kind of shh, shh, quiet, quiet as a mouse. When they doing their thing. So, Anthony Davis, will you accept this rose? 
Mike, I know the I know the Lakers were playing the Washington Wizards. I know it was a reunion against Kuzma and his long sweaters, but Anthony Davis finished the night with fifty five points, seventeen rebounds, and three in two blocks. No, three blocks. Oh, excuse me. I almost took a block from him. Oh, my gosh. How dare I? Um, I think he is getting legitimate MVP buzz right now. And it's Anthony Davis, the guy who doesn't play basketball uh, when he's not actively wearing his uh, uniform for work. Uh, and we all thought that something was wrong with him. But seems like they got it. And, seeing, and with LeBron James finishing with 29 points and eight rebounds and six assists, seems like the Lakers are a player or two away from doing something special, Mike, and guess what? Guess what? What? Darvin Ham is using Russell Westbrook to show footage to the to the Lakers and show them how they should be hustling, how they should be playing harder, how they should be working harder. And I think something about that Patrick Beverly switch, Mike, has done it. It's done it for Anthony Davis and LeBron James. This is the last few games for Anthony Davis. Okay. He had 55 points uh last in uh his last game. Before that, against the Trailblazers, 44 points, 10 rebounds, 27 points, 12 rebounds, 25 points, 13 rebounds, 25 points, 15 rebounds, 37 points, 21 rebounds, 30 points, 18 rebounds, 38 points, 16 rebounds, 37 points, 18 rebounds. He literally sounds like Boogie Cousins on steroids in these last couple games, and I love every second of it. And uh, obviously they're at the bottom of the, the West right now, but it's before Christmas, so it really doesn't matter. But let me give Anthony Davis his flowers before he gets injured. And I, I'm sorry for putting that out there. Oh, God. Oh, man, you just you, you were doing so good, and then you just <laughs> you tripped right over the finish line there. I will say, Lord knows, I didn't watch any basketball this weekend between college football and the NFL. There was too much of that going on for me to pay attention True. otherwise. But I did see Anthony Davis' stack lines getting tweeted out a lot, and I thought, oh, that's nice. That's what those, that's what those fellas need, uh, this Lakers team. <laughs> I mean, really going back to 2020 was all built on the foundation and the idea that Anthony Davis would start to do this more often than not, and that it would make yeah. Easier for a sunsetting LeBron James and make it easier for Russell Westbrook, who is certainly not the height of his powers anymore overall as a contributor. And for a lot of these role players, I saw they cut that nice white guy that was shooting threes for them for a little bit or let him go. So, you know, go. Oh, talking about uh, what's his name? He Matt Ryan, yeah, yeah, they let Matt Ryan go, unfortunately, yeah, but uh, but well, Anthony Davis, the Laker, the only Laker to go back to back 40 plus 10 rebound plus games since. Shaquille O'Neal. There we go. And that is certainly something as Brandon waves his Shaq jersey furiously behind us here. Uh, Brandon, <laughs> my last rose of the day will lead us into uh, our college football playoff discussion. Uh, Nick Saban, Ooh. man. Nick Saban was in a position that I don't feel like we see him often where he's got to go to people and he needs something. And it's not something mm. that he can get readily right away. Because Nick Saban, in the last two decades of our lives, isn't used to needing a whole lot. He's used to getting it. He's used to being able to roll into any situation, whether it is a recruit's living room, now a potential you know guy that's going to hop into the transfer portal, wherever he wants to go, fundraising, he can just go and he'll, you know if it's some sort of Rotary Club dinner, he'll shout loudly about a subject in college football that people think he's commenting on, but really he's just telling everyone in the room, hey, you need to give us more money towards this front. See the Jimbo Fisher rant at the uh, most recent juncture this offseason that was less yes. about Jimbo and more about Alabama building up its own NIL portfolio. Um, Nick Saban had to go to the media this weekend, sitting on the outside of the college football playoff. They finished fifth in the final rankings of the CFP that came out on Sunday. 
uh, just behind Ohio State that became the fourth team to enter the college football playoff. That didn't stop Nick Saban and everyone else who was in the content business around the college football playoff rankings from trying to shoehorn Alabama and their big old brand into this conversation. And Nick Saban had to do the press tour where he talked about why his team, despite having two losses that got pointed out, were by a very small amount of points, close last-second wins by Tennessee, by LSU, the smallest of margins that have kept them from being undefeated or a one-loss team, and how if it was on a neutral field against any of the teams that were in contention, TCU, Ohio State, the fact that Alabama would be favored in those games, he pulled out all the stops in a way that I saw some people wanting to get mad at him about. I applaud that man. He had to humble himself to go out there and talk like that about, you know how pissed off he is probably (laughs) that they got two wins (laughs) and he's got to go out here and cap like this in public for his team. That man had to be furious and he did it anyway. That's, that is a love that we should all know at some point that love that Nick Saban had to go out and politic for his team in public. I salute him and I hand him a rose for that. You're right, Mike. There's something about him in those moments that is uh, it's indicative of him not getting what he wants. So it's like him like him being there at all is him eating crow. So it's a special time in college football. You don't see it very often. And it's a reminder no. that Nick Saban is always going to be whatever the situation needs him to be. He has been one mm. of the most adaptable coaches, if not the most adaptable coach. As I said, he has been the most adaptable coach in college football for the better part of the last two decades. <sighs> if you want to win by just beating the shit out of each other up front in games that end 9-6, okay. Nick Saban will do that for you. If you want to win with a running back room full of space aliens and quarterbacks that are going to get you there, Nick can do that. If you want to go and spread this thing out and up the tempo, Nick will absorb your best punch and Majin Buu the shit out of this thing and just decide to become all of the best parts of you and then beat the shit out of you with it. And if you want to open up the transfer portal and all this other stuff, he will go into the transfer portal and he'll bring over Jamison Williams from Ohio State and he'll turn him into one of the best receivers in the sport. No, Mike, I, I'm not giving you that because as soon as the game actually changed, and we'll talk about in a little bit how much the college football game has actually changed, he's, he has two losses. Like, this, the game now is different, more different than it has been oh. in a very, very long time. What? Brandon, if you – like, at this juncture, we might be able to doubt it, but the game changed big time on him when all of these teams started running this spread no huddle and Nick huffed and puffed and said, is this what we want college football to be? And then he brought Lane Kiffin these guys over and from Blake Sims on at that quarterback room, they became a quarterback factory. They became a place that had two first round receivers at minimum in every year. That was a stark departure from everything they've been. And he does it with new coordinators almost every year, which was the biggest difference between him and Clemson, the other team that stared eye to eye with them through the first six years of the playoff that had the same coordinators by and large year in and year out had staff continuity that Saban could never dream of I don't know why I'm yelling like I'm a Saban apologist and didn't get my ass beat by him and have this personal vendetta against him ruining my joy in 2012 but I have to he has managed to change in ways Brandon that most college football coaches could never dream of as far as the identity around their teams but Mike, I hear like okay, changing the identity of the team and what offense you're running, and the fact that you need quarterbacks that are actually playing the NFL to win games in college now. Yeah, he made all those changes. We, we did it. We're, we're dealing with those quarterbacks being good in the NFL right now. But when it comes to evolving as the landscape changes the way it's changing now, 
I think I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit back and wait because he's he's one of those guys that could just easily bow out and retire and be like, oh, it was his time. But I, I feel like it might it might catch up to him. A couple more two lost seasons might might irritate the shit out of him. Well, I mean, he's also like finally like he's been the rising tide, and now some of the other ships are showing up to the party. Tennessee Absolutely. coming back online. Georgia is the college football program of note now, and right. that's an assistant yeah. that finally left the nest of Nick Saban and managed to go out and accomplish more. He had traditionally had those guys under the thumb. And so let's talk about the college football playoff. We have the top four and the final four come out after conference championship weekend, and very strange one, and it must have felt the World Cup vibes where you can lose <laughs> your last game and still advance out of the group stage because we had two teams oh, lose man. their last game and managed to advance out of the group stage to the knockout round um, over conference championship weekend because we know Friday night we had the Pac-12 championship where USC lost a game to Utah where Utah physically beat the shit out of them in a way that has become very Utah under Kyle Whittingham. And we saw them do last year to Oregon in the same exact way. Beat the same team twice and seemed to beat them more physically the second time around. Now a big part of that goes to Caleb Williams, Star quarterback, likely Heisman winner, suffered a hamstring injury in the middle of that game that severely limited his production. And we saw very... Oh. I think when he, after the game, hearing that he popped it, he popped his hamstring in the first quarter and still see what he was able to do. Gosh, I, I, God bless his recovery. Yeah, in all seriousness, you do wish him uh, overwhelmingly well because you saw once you took that all that special ability away, and we kind of said this against Notre Dame, Notre Dame didn't lose to SC as much as they lost to Caleb Williams. And when you right. took Caleb Williams playing at the final boss level of a video game off the table for SC, <laughs> it's amazing right. how quickly the rest of them, and that's not to take away from what Utah did. That program is unassailable in the last couple of years. And was helped by rising. They were my preseason pick to make the college football playoff. You don't think I felt a little validated by what went on on Friday? But all that is to say that opened <sighs> up the door for everything else that was going to happen this weekend because you had that USC team that now had two losses and no conference championship and was eliminated from contention. And so we walked into the rest of the weekend and TCU goes out there, no losses on their resume, rematch against Kansas State, and Kansas State manages to win that game in overtime. Max Duggan, their Heisman hopeful at quarterback the Spartan line go out with your shield or on it that guy was dragging that team kicking and screaming on the ground I saw the first player with 200 over 250 yards passing and 100 yards rushing in a conference championship game since Deshaun Watson in 2014 so like rarefied errors number wise yes. for Max Duggan who I still don't think even played his best game necessarily in a lot of ways in that game as a passer I thought TCU mm -hmm. on defense still managed to control a lot of the line of scrimmage but Kansas State made the plays and won that game and so now we had them losing that final game Ohio State lurking in the distance especially once USC had lost and that Alabama specter but the committee made the right decision Brandon you had Georgia and Michigan who Michigan had a little bit of early trouble with Purdue ended up cruising to a win Georgia put 50 points up on LSU probably gave up more points than they wanted to and so we have Georgia one Michigan two TCU I think rightfully at three in front of Ohio State at four who manages to sneak back in despite the fact that they got blown out by their rival in Michigan and so a yeah. couple of important housekeeping notes on that still no two loss team for all the talk that we had about right 
the potential for this to happen with LSU for a long time. Still no two-loss team has ever made the college football playoff in this four-team format. We know we've only got one year left of that. But I think what was of note is Ohio State did get blown out in that game against Michigan, and usually that had been a non-starter. And so for Ohio State to sneak their way back in is once again an Ohio State team that went out and scheduled tough in the non-conference, started off the season with Notre Dame, albeit in a true home Mm -hmm. game, and got a win that I think in a lot of people's mind helped separate them in some of these conversations even though everyone below them had two losses Tennessee and Alabama both sitting there Alabama inexplicably ahead of Tennessee both had two losses that were going to make that conversation a lot harder and so I'll give the committee credit they made their layups this was a layup the way that this shook out over the weekend especially because we always say the how matters and TCU losing that game in overtime gut-wrenching barn-burning fashion I think made it impossible to take them and knock them down any lower than where they already were there at number three. Yeah. And I think matchups are important, Mike. And with this whole two versus three, four versus one setup, I, I, the last thing I wanted to see was Ohio state, Michigan again, first round of the playoffs. So like that's one thing, but also the reason I wanted USC to be in there so bad, because I wanted to see a Heisman candidate in the playoffs. And I think we get that with TCU and Max Duggan. Like, the way he put his team on his back and, like we talked about, Joe Burrow ran down the field. The, the, there was that one series where they just needed that uh, – they needed a touchdown uh, just to take it into overtime. And after he scored, he's, like, telling everybody to get the fuck away from him so he could breathe. And he just needed space. Like, I, I, I can't wait to see this team on a big stage, especially against Michigan. I did love the fact that um, that when you saw the watch party for the college football playoff reaction, when they announced mm-hmm. this, everyone else stood up and celebrated, and Max Duggan stayed sitting his ass down because he was Ooh. still exhausted. And I bet he was inches away from a cramp at any given moment during that celebration <laughs> and had to be a little bit too careful. I took it the other way. I thought he was just like locked in. It was like uh, it was the same thing with Trey Young when they when they when Oklahoma when Oklahoma made the the uh, the March Madness. Everyone's so excited. And Trey Young's just like, just get me out of here. Like I'm just trying to, I'm trying to go. To, I'm trying to go to the NBA. Hey man, listen. If jealousy is just love and hate at the same time, then maybe being hey. locked in is just being focused and exhausted at the same time. The way that Max Duggan True was that. yesterday. Um, and you, you, you heard from it because a lot of people, because TCU was new to the party, because having inertia and having experience being around these conversations does affect, I think some of the subconscious bias that people in the committee walk into these discussions with Boo Corrigan, the chairman of the committee basically made it sound like that the conversation was never about TCU and Alabama. It was about Ohio state and Alabama and mm. that four versus five conversation around those two teams as they looked with that. And so um, they said, you know, and Corrigan told Heather Dinich at ESPN that having three teams, TCU, Bama, and Ohio State without conference titles did change some of the conversations within the room, but made it sound like ultimately that was an Ohio State and the TC or an Ohio State, excuse me, and an Alabama conversation and not a TCU one. And so you're right. It, it will be very compelling matchups there. I think Michigan really is like this is they've turned themselves into the second best team in football 
albeit one that's trying to win the same as the best team in football. Like, what Ohio State gets to play in the first round of the playoff in Georgia is just giga Michigan. It is Michigan Mm. plush. It is, (laughs) like, it is the Michigan that has gone out and accomplished and is, you know, certainly, I I think, a more viable threat on offense. We know Blake Corum, unfortunately, who should be in New York for the Heisman still, had successful Mm. knee surgery. He's going to be done for the rest of the year. Donovan Edwards was, you know, I think the MVP of the Big Ten Championship game, if I'm remembering right. And so they've got the horses to run on this, does Michigan. But for Ohio State on the other side, having to go up against better Michigan in this first round is going to have to be a team that really learned from its mistakes the first time around and is somehow able to get tougher in the trenches in the interim. Wait a minute, Michigan and TCU are playing first round. Yeah, Michigan and TCU are playing. I'm just saying Ohio State went up against a Michigan right, team right, that right. is good in a lot of ways. Georgia is better in all the ways. Well, I will say this. I thought J.J. McCarthy, he looks like Max Duggan, on, on, like Giga Max Duggan. Like, dude is nasty and smooth and handsome. He is. He is all the above. He's incredibly fi- – I mean, he's, I think, a former five-star player. He's an incredibly physically gifted quarterback that has been going out and putting it together more and more as the season. So uh, we'll get into more of that as we get closer and closer to that. we got plenty of time to do playoff previews, but – they got it right in a way that was very easy. As usual, football kind of bails the committee out. And I saw Spencer Hall and others point out, they end up always making the right decision. We usually never had a lot of beef with who the top four teams are in the college football playoff. I think with very few uh, reactions, we can have people bitch and complain about the 12-team expanded playoff at a later date. But it's the most wonderful time of the year. March Madness getting ready to go in college basketball. And we got some of the best stars in the sport finally trying to close the deal. Zach Eady at Purdue trying to see if he can cap off an historic career with the championship. Much like his counterpart on the women's side and Caitlin Clark, who's been one of the biggest names in sports this entire year and is looking to see if she can snag that elusive championship that eluded her during her career. Regardless of who makes it to that final game of the tourney, though, one thing's for certain. It's going to take the most talented people like the two I just mentioned working together to help these teams play at a high level. If you're hiring, you want the most talented people on your team to help your business go to the next level. How do you find them? ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Gojo. ZipRecruiter uses matching technology to score excellent candidates for your job. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's powerful technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And once you review your list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply, so they're more likely to apply sooner. Pick ZipRecruiter to help you build a winning team. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Gojo. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Gojo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Brandon, one other thing I did want to get to, too, on the college front was Deion Sanders. Uh, Deion Sanders did the thing that we were not expecting him to do in taking the Colorado head coaching job that was rumored to be out there, that he confirmed was offered to him, and now is his. He was announced on Sunday in front of the Colorado crowd, in front of his new Colorado team. We also got to see the footage of him after Jackson State won their conference championship going and having a meeting with those players and breaking the news to them that he would no longer be their coach. Um, 
Brandon, how did you feel about this one? Because on the surface, I think you and I both looked at this and did not necessarily see the fit for Deion Sanders, who we expected to keep being a name that was brought up in conversation for better and better Power 5 jobs, if not this offseason as we got into the coaching season, then definitely next year. Yeah, uh, Coach Prime is obviously, I'll say it this way, he's been a better college football coach than any of us expected him to be. And that's why this opportunity is there in the first place. Very good job at Jackson State. And you can talk about the competition if you want to. But we're going to get a chance to see what he can do uh, with, with Colorado in the Pac-12. I just – I thought the situation in Jackson State financially was good enough for him to wait for a better fit. And I think a better fit is something that only people from the outside looking in can really talk about because I'm sure Deion Sanders – had every intention of being at Jackson State until he got a Power Five coaching opportunity with enough money for him to, you know, take his staff with him and do all the X, Y, and Z. So I, I want to say that as much as I was nervous about him going to Jackson State in the first place because he's very he's a magnet, right? He's a he's a he's a yeah. he has everyone's eyes. He has the formula for eyes. He has uh, catchphrases that we still utter today. Like he's just magnetic and 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 uh, just a huge presence and I thought that would dwarf the team and then the the games start running and seasons start coming in and you're like oh I don't just care about Deion Sanders and and uh, him as a coach I care about this Jackson State team and now that he's leaving it feels a little bit for a lot of people who are rooting for HBCUs and the success of HBCUs, my little sister went to South Carolina. Uh, went to South Carolina State, the same place that uh, Shaq uh, Leonard went, and I was talking to her a lot about it. And there's a trajectory that HBCUs are always trying to to catch on to to get uh, relevance and and importance and and uh, people just to cover their games in a very real way. And that change happened when Deion Sanders was there. Should we expect that change to continue to happen now that he's gone? Probably not. And I think that's the part that is sad and hard to see because the money is just not there to keep a talent like Deion Sanders. And we all knew Jackson State and Deion Sanders were both using each other for uh, yeah for what they needed to what they wanted in the in the back end, Mike. But I'm gonna lay out now. I just say there's a, it just feels odd. And uh, for a lot of reasons, and obviously we'll get into that. Yeah, I, so I understand, and I, I listen. I'm not in a position to comment on the feelings of you know HBCU alums who are affected by this in that way. Who thought Deion Sanders was really coming here to make a difference on this level? I, I'm kind of like you. Deion Sanders to me always seemed like someone who is is like a lot of coaches, ambitious. Like I don't want to make it sound like yes. Dion is unique in going there and having this be about him improving his station in this job. He can at both times be very serious about coming in there and wanting to improve in all of the ways that he did facilities wise, coverage wise, attendance wise, funding wise for Jackson state and for HBCU football. He can be serious about that while also having goals and aspirations for himself as a competitor in coaching. Mm -hmm. And that this was always going to be the bet next. Like that should be instructive for Colorado also if this goes well Dion will not be here very long like if this right. goes well at Colorado which everyone there hopes it does it will go well for a probably three years at most maybe even less than that yeah. if it were somehow go really well really early for a team that was 1-11 this season and then he would be gone yeah. and then if you're Colorado your job is to draft off of that success and figure out how to keep that going going forward 
much the same way, and albeit tougher for all the reasons that you mentioned, is going to now be the charge for everyone at Jackson State in Dion's wake. Because as much as people might have wanted to believe this, I don't think this was ever going to be a forever thing with him. And mm-hmm. I think part of that is is financial. He talked about when he addressed this, the financials of it, saying, I never chased the bag. I've made a lot of money in my life. That's not what this is about. He was making, I think, like $300,000 a year at Jackson State and is getting set to make like five and a half a year at Colorado. That, By the way, well, Colorado's athletic director, Rick George, was asked how they came up with the money. And he said, quote, we don't have the money yet. But I know we'll have it, so I'm not worried about that piece. Colorado, are you okay? Like, what? Like, this is like they like, went to Aaron's and got and got like got the Rena Center. Colorado hit us with the Kevin Hart. See the way my bank account is set up. I got to right. check in the savings and all my money. Check the savings and checkings right now. Take three days. Did you rub it on your jeans? Yeah. Like, did you, did you wipe it? Did you wipe it? No. I, honestly, yeah, Mike. I I think this is the. the I want to mention too about Deion Sanders. He gave half of his salary back to the university yeah. and back to the football team to like help with things. So like there was a there was a level of investment for him that we would hope was in the long term. But like you said, same thing with Colorado. It went well, so it didn't last long. Right, because this is still an opportunity that's got more resources for him. Not only, like you said, brick and mortar, the salary that I think is more just about a respect thing than anything else, being able to say you're now one of the higher paid coaches in X conference or Y level of football. All these things that for most people in that station, it ends up being about the respect that I hope I'm owed and that I've earned and that he has earned on the field at Jackson State and is why he's in this particular situation. So... I, Brandon, the other part of this that was interesting was his uh, speech in front of the Colorado team um, got yes. put out on the internet because everything with Deion Sanders, you know, he's got the deal with Barstool Sports. Everything that he does yep. is also a part of the show. And that's one of the things that, as we talk about why Dion at this job and not others, some people have talked about maybe the hesitancy for someone to bring in a personality this big and a brand as big as Deion Sanders in college football does seem so silly because, God, this is the sport that's tried to make the coaches the stars forever. Like, this sport and this level have so resisted making the players the center of attention because they leave and because the coaches stay and because they're the names that you know and it's a lot easier to pay them all that money and make them feel important than it is to have to acknowledge that the players have a pretty big role in making everyone watch this game as much as they do. But that's a whole different conversation. Um... A lot of this that that went viral with everyone was Deion Sanders' line talking to this team that, again, was a 1-11 football team this last year, had a terrible season. I'm sure it felt the weight of that. And Deion Sanders came in and he did – first off, I I have to say this out loud in front of somebody because the central tenet of Deion's speech was he, he would mix in. He'd say, I'm coming. And his whole point was, I'm coming here to change everything that's going on here, the way that we compete, yeah. the way that we approach all this. I am not mature enough for how many times Deion Sanders sat up and said, I'm coming over and over again in a lot of different inflections. It was just a lot for me to take in as a person. So I just wanted to clear the air on that right away. I couldn't help myself. Um, oh, man. He, he, I will say this, though. He is, he is the, uh, unlike Shane Beamer, 
South Carolina's head coach. Uh, he Dion's like such an old school guy that he doesn't even notice when he's doing stuff like nope. that. Nope. You know what I mean? Just like just saying, I'm coming over and over again. Like, who's over there? Who's that snicking and laughing? I am coming. Yeah. I'm coming hard at you. <laughs> you know what it sounds like when I'm coming, all right? Coming all on all of you. Everyone oh. in the front row. Coming on all of you. Oh, okay. All right. See, like, we were just doing a fun <laughs> bit and you just made you just made it too much. You just, but I, but I guess Brandon to the to the real nuts and bolts of it because part of what he did address there. I'm sorry. I, I promise I didn't mean to do that. Yes, you did. I, I, I swear yes, I'm did. not that clever. Um, oh man, but got some big balls. Part part of part of this experience with him was was. Making that point. And the way Dion does it, everything is cutting a wrestling promo with Dion Sanders publicly. That's how he sells these programs. That's how he sells himself. And part of the thing that people got attached to was him saying that I'm coming and I'm bringing my lug. You know, he's like, we've got some positions already worked out because I'm bringing my luggage and it's Louie, meaning that there's going to be players coming with him in the transfer portal here. And a lot of people took umbrage with that because a lot of this didn't sound like a normal head coach, very politically correctly addressing a a team, knowing that the media is around there, right? It sounded like a coach who was a high level player for a long time. Dion at a lot of junctures talks a lot more like a player tonally than a coach. Yes. Because that's yes. his background. Because I'm sure when he lays his head on his pillow at night, that might still be who he will always envision himself as. I used to ask my dad that mm-hmm. all the time. Player or broadcaster. And it was always player for him. And so Interesting. the way it sounded, and this is like a, a thing that you know, I remember an old football coach of mine said a long time ago, which was listen to what I'm saying and not how I'm saying it. And I think part of mm-hmm. this with Dion is you have to understand that the way he's saying it is the sell. And the substance of what he said really isn't that far off from what most coaches say which was hey coming in here we are going to elevate the standard for too long around here that we have got to come in and change the culture he talked about the stuff that you have gotten away with around here is not going to fly anymore type thing and basically said we are going to demand toughness smart the stuff that he made the guys recite back to him and if that's not for you then here's the transfer portal and he referenced it all in these modern terms he talked about the portal and while it sounds on the surface kind of distasteful essentially what it was is you can buy in and be a part of this program and if these things aren't appealing to you then here's the door which plenty of places do we've seen plenty of programs that behind the scenes and without telling people have run people off the team have oversigned classes yeah. and done all this and so I, I I listened to it a couple of times I saw all right most of that is pretty status quo it just sounds bigger and louder and we've got these quips that people end up going and putting all over the internet that are talking about young people's futures and then I think making light of it in the way that people received it but not necessarily the way that he intended if that makes sense yeah Mike it was one of those things like you said as I sat with it I was like okay it wasn't that egregious it wasn't that crazy but for him to basically tell that team that they weren't good and that he was bringing good players in to replace the not good players there and then ask them to do the team cadence thing. <laughs> he was like, he was like, Every, hey, and if you're not ready for this, you can go ahead and hit the transfer portal because I got I got people coming in because it's going to make more room for, for players that are smart. Everybody say smart. Smart. 
<laughs> plays that tough. Everybody say tough, tough. I was like, no, you just told them that they were shitty. Like, why? Are well, you, why are you putting them through this rigmarole? And I, but I guess that's the thing too is he also did the bit where he went around the room and was asking these guys, you know, is that what you are? Like, there was an invitation for people to stay, and that to me, like, as okay, as yeah, jarring as it fair. was to hear, it's jarring to be a part of this process. You and I went through a coaching change. It's a jarring experience every which way because the way that you yeah. did things did not like it did not work and that's not an indictment of the previous coach it doesn't have to be about that but it's just about hey what happened before like we're in a position now when changes get made things aren't going well and so you're gonna have to relearn a bunch of stuff and do something in a different way and every part of that experience is jarring and I'm always cognizant of walking in and feeling like you're treated like a hand-me-down because that's the one thing you Mm -hmm. don't want and that was the one thing tonally with this that did jar me at first that I didn't necessarily like was that idea of oh, well, when you see the clip online posted like that, you're not watching the whole thing, is, oh, it kind of feels like you're just saying, yeah, these guys aren't good and you can leave because I'm going to bring in good players. And then you kind of sit with it in the full context, and it's something that you'd expect, which is, hey, in this day and age, we're going to bring in competition. We just a couple of days ago lauded Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame for going and telling Drew Pine, their quarterback that's now in the transfer portal, hey, we're going to probably bring in a graduate transfer this offseason. Tyler Buckner, who was the starter over you at the beginning of the season is getting healthy you'll have a chance to compete but this is what we're going to do and you have the information to make the decision and I appreciated a coach being straightforward in this day and age with players because they do have options and because you could lie and keep someone there to have them for depth Absolutely. and lock them out of a situation that's better for them and so here while it sounded abrasive in the clips that we saw I think the overall message was we are going to try and change the way that we do things around here this is my expectation we're going to bring in competition because it's available to us and if you're okay with that and you want to come in and buy into this standard then we'll go forward and if not here's the door if this isn't for you then here's the door and I think we see and hear some version of that in a lot of ways coaches address the team most coaches just aren't as adept at cutting it to sound like a promo and mentioning Louis luggage the way that prime is (laughs) yeah Mike but I also I think one of the reasons why it's just it's it's foreign and, and it gives us pause because we come from a different generation of college football where now, like, in, in reality, every season is different. Every season does change. And, the, and college football is now more of an amateur league for the NFL, and you have to get yourself ready to well, get drafted or get, put yourself in a position to, you know, and, continue your football career past college. Well, and that is the other part of this, too, is – this is, you know, we talk about how it's a bit, a bit more transactional, and that's from the player and the coach's side, is now players yeah. do have that recourse where if a new coach comes in and it's not the situation that they were sold and they think there's a better opportunity elsewhere, I at least sleep better now knowing that players have the ability to go and change their outcome if they want to. That, yeah, right. you know what? Deion Sanders might be a great coach for a bunch of people. Maybe it is not the coach for a certain player, and they now have a way to go out into the portal and find a a new home if that's available to them and so part of that is the new world of the co- of college football that is a lot more business like on both ends and I think we're going to see coaches continue to adjust to that right if every year you've got to deal yeah. with re-recruiting your own players there's also the other side of that coin which is every year you are replaceable in the eyes of now these yeah. regimes yeah and I, that's what that's the difference when I was talking about Nick Saban to now because Deion Sanders is getting into this game in this new era, so he's going to coach like it, where 
it's maybe newer for Saban, but how you just laid it out, that's probably something that Saban's been dealing with the entire time with, ha- you know, having national championship yeah. teams and having top tier talent. Yep. And he's managed to get guys to stay and managed to also coax guys in there to fill up key spots. The yeah. funny part with Dion is also, we mentioned all this new school stuff. His tone is mm-hmm. decidedly old school. Like the thing that surprised me so most cool. about that press conference. And listen, as far as his overall success, like I know we spent a lot of time box score watching on the press conference here. I have no idea if he'll be <laughs> yeah. successful at Colorado or not. We just mentioned they don't have the money to pay him right now. Resources aren't <laughs> as plentiful at the power five level, even if how it compares to where he was before they have more available right. to him. And he referenced as such, I don't know if they'll have the resources to be successful one of his sons who's going to come over with him at quarterback mentioned and was asked, how does your dad win? And he said he wins with better players. And mm. getting better players than Colorado had last year might be in the cards. He might be able to, especially from the HBCU level, pull some of the great players that he brought in there, other great players from that level in the transfer portal. But I have no idea right. if in the Pac-12 now he's going to be at a spot where resources-wise Colorado can put him in a position to replicate what he did at Jackson State. And so we'll see if it's successful on the top end or not uh, on that front. But to the old school, new school nature of this, his tone is decidedly old school because in that meeting, he walked in and he said part of his thing was when I get here there's going to be no hats and earrings and people wearing hoodies and oh I wish you would bring a cell phone into my team meeting all this stuff that like especially the hats and earrings and hoodies thing like we just kind of did that at Iowa not too long ago and everyone talked about the racial undertones that start with a lot of that that most people looked at and find distasteful now but for some is just the way and again part of this is also baked into when Dion played football is we didn't recognize all those things had the racial undertones it's just wild to hear it from a guy in Deion Sanders who does seem like earrings in prime time and big and loud and bright Mr. Mr. Hats, uh, Mr. Earrings, Mr. Jerry Curl, Mr. Flash. Yes, I, I do. I hear that, but I think there's a little bit of the uh, the N-word rule. Like we can say it, but y'all can't. Hey, if, if anyway, if anybody can say, if anybody can tell a group of twenty-something year olds and eighteen-year-olds that they can't wear hats and, and jewelry and and be flashy and stuff. It's Dion. You know what? And it is funny too because for all that we know about that, just again going through football when we did, we weren't allowed to wear stuff like that. Like it was, everyone looks the same in all of these settings. And so when he did walk into that room, knowing it was the first meeting with his new team. And I saw the one kid in the front row who was kind of like leaned back in his chair and the guys that did have hats and sweats on and like the hoods were pulled up and stuff like that. It gave me so much anxiety because I know how uncomfortable I felt if I was a little bit out of place in a meeting room like that. Yeah. Oh, like, like everything they say is like, oh, that's me. Yeah, like, oh, well, and like, <laughs> don't you know when it's like you get it when it's maybe you getting referenced in the meeting and all of a sudden you start to tense up and it's like when you drive by a cop and you're doing a little bit too much, you don't yes. want to hit the brakes right away, but at the same time, you're all of a sudden <laughs> kind of just inching up in your chair a little bit yeah, and just... the hood might just come down really <laughs> just... quickly. Like, you don't do it right away, but you make it no. real subtle the minute he starts looking hey. away. Hey, you got to do something. You got to like drop a pencil or something like that to to re, to, you know, what I mean, to reset in the chair a little bit, like I'll, make it look natural. I'll never forget. Speaking of, the, so when Brian Kelly got introduced as Notre Dame's head coach, um, when we were there, and <sighs> for anyone unfamiliar with us, we had Charlie Weiss as our head coach our first two years at Notre Dame. Brian Kelly uh, was there the last two for Brandon, three for me. 
And when he got introduced at the press conference, in the lead up to that, we had not had a head football coach for about a month, which meant we were on one. Just a full-blown bender, going out every night of the yep. week, showing up to workouts in a, you know, a BAC that probably wasn't healthy to be around that much weight room material. And <laughs> so when it came time for this, I remember Brian Kelly's press conference that me and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of guys went over to and were sitting in the background of was in the team meeting room. This was him addressing the media, not him addressing us. But I remember him addressing the media. We were sitting in the back of the room. I'm sitting there in issued sweats. And it was Friday morning, which meant Thursday night before, for anyone familiar with Notre Dame in the early aughts, was Club Fever, Michiana's hottest nightclub. <laughs> and outside of Club Fever was Amen. Vesuvio's, a pizza place that I'm pretty sure has since then been closed by the health department. And I had enjoyed both the night before, um, winding up and ending my night at like two in the morning at Vesuvio's mashing on pizza that cost way less than it should. And so I'm sitting there in this meeting, a little bit hungover, having just eaten pizza like that the night before at the end of the night. And no joke, Brian Kelly, in his introductory press conference, one of the first things he gets up and says and talks about is their approach to health and fitness. We want to lean this team Ooh, out. We yes. want to be a tempo team. We want to you know, make sure that we're putting the right things in our bodies. Nutrition and performance are going to be important. We're not going to be out until the late hours in the morning eating cheesy pizza. And that was a direct quote from him. And I'm sitting in the back there looking around going, did he know? Did he have someone at Fieve last night? Was he having GAs outside of Vesuvio's oh, already man. as I probably still had pizza stains somewhere on my person? Hey, and at that point in time, uh, freshmen or what class we were, sophomores, we were like kind of near the back. Yep. Right? So you're far enough to wait. It's like, okay, he doesn't smell it on yeah. me, but maybe they had me scouted out. They had eyes somewhere that I didn't <laughs> think they had, and now I got to dot my T's and cross my eyes. So it's, it, you know, Ooh, again, yeah. I wish the, I, first and foremost, I wish the players at Colorado well, man. Like, I know that True. season was not fun, and I know part of that is because you probably, like, on any team that we were a part of, Brandon, there were guys that were there to just wear the helmet or just wear the uniform or enjoyed just getting to say that they were on the team and the rest of it did yeah. not matter as much as it you know was going to when a program got to a place where it was going to go so I don't begrudge yeah. Dion on that front because part of that assessment is is usually true with most bad teams but I do wish those guys well man you got five years to make it happen if it's not there it is somebody else somewhere else best of luck go get that and we will wait and see how the Dion Sanders experience uh plays out at uh now Colorado as he is now the new head coach there the thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. That means as we lurch towards March Madness, you can try and figure out who's going to win this whole thing. On the men's side, teams like UConn, Houston, and Purdue. On the women's side, South Carolina, Stanford, the Lady Irish in Notre Dame, or maybe Caitlin Clark's Iowa Hawkeyes finally get over the hump. Make the decision for yourself and head over and download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code GOJO when you do. New customers can bet 5 bucks and get $150 instantly in bonus bets. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code GOJO, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. 
In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Uh, Brandon, Crazy. quickly just taking stock before we get to this, that, and the third. I want to move this along so we don't go too much longer. Picks. Uh, yeah, picks uh, from this weekend. Another three and three weekend. I just cannot get over that hump. NFL, Philly minus four and a half. Jacksonville and Detroit over 51. Going over, God bless Dan Campbell, going over on their last drive of the game. Huge legend there. Great. Dolphins plus yes. four was the uh, one that ended up letting me down on that front. And then uh, college, uh, USC minus two and a half. Obviously, that Caleb Williams hammy blew that one out. Georgia minus 17 and a half in that game. Cashed that check. And Will Shipley, well under 96 and a half rushing yards uh, in that Clemson game. That one, the Cade Klubnik story, as now DJ Uyunglele will enter the transfer portal as well, as they are ACC champs. And I got to tell you, no one should feel worse than Clemson fans after Selection Sunday. Because if that team had just put Cade Klubnik in earlier in the season I have to imagine they are in the final four because the way that he looked Mm. in that game versus what we saw from DJ in that game against South Carolina if they don't lose that game against South Carolina and they do what they did yesterday they are in the playoff over Ohio State that is not a like a maybe that is a definitely and so I'm just shocked that Dabo Swinney who we know is fiercely loyal but also made the move from Kelly Bryant to Trevor Lawrence in a way that changed Clemson's trajectory in the playoff era he's done it before and the fact that he did not make that move here until it was too late is shocking to me because Dabo Sweeney is a very good coach who does have it on his record that he's made moves like that already so that was the weekend on our front uh on my front Brandon and I know yours is also disappointing personally and professionally here yeah Mike uh went to five and five on the season with my double picks for stocking stuffers, uh, the Baltimore Ravens had them uh, plus eight and a half against the Denver Broncos. Eh, didn't happen, uh, even though Russell Wilson sucked. Um, sorry, excuse me. Even though Russell Wilson seemed to can't find the end zone, uh, the Ravens had to do a a last minute was it ninety one yard sixteen play drive to uh, score to make it ten to nine. Okay, and then moving on to Indianapolis. I don't know why I picked this, Mike. I, I I trusted this line. I thought ten and a half was just too much. Brandon, for, you were for two you teams were right. that love running the ball. You were right until the fourth quarter. It was a two point game going into the fourth quarter. No one could have seen Thank that shit you. coming. Oh my gosh, I was so pissed, Mike. But you know, uh, Dak Prescott and 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 the rest of them. Uh, so yeah, I was I was I was wrong on both my picks, and it's not an exact science, but. Five and five on the season. There we go. You know what? The house always wins. We're going to effort to get better. I'm 35, 47, and three on the season. So I can't talk to anybody about anything. Playing 500 football right now. <laughs> I'm a 500 football picker. And that is just the way Man. that it goes. But Brandon, that is not the important part of this podcast. The important part of this podcast is when I ask you the very important question of do you know what time it is? You know I do, Mike. And I'm going to be quick because we've been talking for a long time. All right now. I do want to shout out Hanukkah. We got a comment about that in the, in the reviews. Starts starts December 18th. I'm, I'm ideating. I'm ideating. There we go. I was going to say, at Gojo Show on Twitter, to all of our Jewish brothers and sisters out there, if you've got any recommendations for songs that you would like Brandon to cover as we get closer and closer to the start of Hanukkah, hit us up because we know Hanukkah's got bangers also.
Amen. And now for the other holiday. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. But the very next day, you gave it away. This year, to save me from tears, I'll this, that, and the third. Oh, she pretty. Brandon, she pretty. That was just nice and good feelings for your Monday morning at Gojo Show on Twitter. And, of course, download, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Leave us that five-star rating and a review. And tell Brandon how much you enjoyed a little bit of last Christmas. A little bit of wham in there for you. Why not? Go off. A little wham. I found a little boy, Georgie. Might as well get sexy. Might as well, man. Do your thing, 21. Um, Brandon, let's get to this. Um, this, I was beside myself. I was watching uh, the conference championship games uh, out at a bar this weekend. And the Dr. Pepper halftime show is something that I got to be a part of at the Big 12 championship for the last three years. Shout out to Jason Fitz, friend of the program we talked about. Did a great job down in Arlington with the folks at that game. But the fun wasn't there. The fun was at the Dr. Pepper halftime show in Atlanta the SEC championship because we had yep. the situation we prepared for every year. So the day before the Dr. Pepper challenge, there's prelims, there's more kids they bring out there. They go through to determine who's going to meet in the championship round. And in that time, all the rest of them, like there's other scholarship money given out. It's a really cool thing for them. Kayla Gibson from St. Augustine and Reagan Whitaker from Baylor were the two going up against each other in the SEC title game. The goal is $100,000 in tuition. You throw the footballs into the cans. And the two competitors were tied after 30 seconds. And so we have not seen a tiebreaker in a while, but we were always prepared. The first tiebreaker, as people saw, was 15 seconds put on the clock. The bins were moved a little bit closer, and you go from there. And after that, both of them were also tied. And the tiebreaker Mm. on Friday, the thing that most people don't know about is whatever your score is in that first round on Friday, if we get to a double uh, overtime situation, whoever scored the most on Friday in the prelims wins the thing. And that happens, Mm. and I don't believe was explained on the fly. It's a lot to jam in. You're trying not to go over on the halftime because the TV crew's got to get the start of the second half going at the right. There's all these things about the window you're trying to hit that's very small. And so Dr. Pepper ended up getting so much flack about it online that they actually ended up awarding $100,000 of scholarship money to both instead of just having the one winner based on the rules that they had set. So the Dr. Pepper double overtime rules got stress tested, and they failed. But the winner is both those kids because they get a hundred grand in tuition, so that's awesome. Yeah, shouts out to them. Uh, I don't know if I've told you about this. My mom moved into my home because we're about to move to Florida, and she's going to be renting it out. And when we leave, and I had the games on, and in the other room, she's like, "Uh uh-uh, oh no, oh I can't believe it, no." And I came in, I was like, "Oh, what happened in the game?" She was like, this halftime show, Dr. Pepper. So I got the whole recap. It was very important in our house. Oh, so I'm glad it made this that in the third. It was electric stuff. I'm just shouting the rules of this tiebreaker <laughs> to random people in the bar who did not care to hear from me, all because I had prepped for this situation <laughs> for years. This is like when high school coaches prepare their team for the swinging gate on an extra point field goal try, and one team <laughs> finally runs it. Shout out to my high school football coach, Mike Tyler prepared us for that for four years and we finally got it our senior year the dr pepper halftime show Beautiful. finally got it this weekend and got bullied into giving out more money um brandon no bullying required for that uh major league baseball 
uh, announced its Hall of Fame team as voted on in the inaugural Contemporary Baseball Era Committee this weekend. A ballot of eight candidates whose primary contributions to the game took place after 1980, who still needed 75, 75% of the vote to be elected. Obviously, a big headline of this is going to be Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling all still denied mm-hmm. again. That's going to be a big part of it. But shout out to Fred McGriff making the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, The 59-year-old was a five-time All-Star, hit 493 homers and 2,493 hits while finishing in the top 10 of the MVP ballot for six seasons. But Brandon, that's not why you and I remember him. We remember him from the Tom Amansky instructional videos that used to run advertisements on daytime (laughs) TV all the time that used to feature Fred McGriff, giving his endorsement of Tom Amansky's methods for what he did helping him hit there. And Brandon, I just feel like this is a big moment for the older millennials who got to grow up with this on their television, even though we did hear from Fred McGriff himself on Kenny Mayne's last sports center that he had never actually seen the video or the, uh, the videotape after all these years of knowing he was associated with it. Isn't that make it better? Yeah. Like that makes it just so much better for me. Like, and also you, you, I thought I did not remember this until you jogged my memory and then my mind went straight to like the Nickelodeon magazine commercials as well. Like, there's a special time of uh, television in the '90s where commercials were really, really knocking it out. Of the Bro, park. it was a commercial for a video. Like, you were watching a commercial <laughs> to buy a VHS tape of this guy teaching you how to turn a double play. It's, I mean, so you you say it, and it just makes me want to like go get it again. It's like the, my baseball days are over. So. If I can find a way to convert that to Blu-ray and then convert it to whatever we do now, because Blu-rays definitely are a thing, <laughs> then my future offspring will know all about Tom Amansky, and thus we'll see Fred McGriff throw them that thumbs up because now, goddammit, he's in the Hall <laughs> of Fame and potentially in some defunct blockbuster video store that will exist long after the apocalypse. Uh, congratulations to Fred mm-hmm. McGiff. You are a piece of all of our childhoods, and I'm very happy for you, despite having little to no memory of you as an actual baseball player. Uh, Brandon, exactly. let's get to the third. Uh, the third is just a little bit of personal one here. Shout out to Neil Ivey and the Notre Dame women's basketball team yes. for putting it on UConn enthusiastically. Um the ladies went out there and got a big-time win at home. Purcell Pavilion was rocking. I saw a bunch of our old friends in there. Um, Shout-out to Dev Peters, who was in attendance there. Uh, Natalie Achama was in the crowd. I think Arike Ngumbawale was also there. Marcus Freeman Damn. hanging out. The Stars were out. Notre Dame beat UConn 74-60. to uh, The number seven-ranked Irish beat number three UConn. Uh, now, for UConn, AZ Fudd only played 13 minutes. Their stud uh, stud freshman who went down with a knee injury that isn't expected to think keep her out for an extended period of time, but did for this game. Notre Dame beat that ass. Um, coach Ivy gets a big-time early win in her tenure as a head coach. They almost got the upset win over NC State in the tournament last year as well. And so continuing to build in these moments, her and Muffet getting to celebrate after. It was the goods. It was the goods. It is really special. As much as people know about Notre Dame football in South Bend, women's basketball is uh, the football team. I guess you can't really say it like that, but it's very important, and that's why everybody was out, and I'm I'm happy to see uh, just we did it. Beating UConn is big. It's 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 like beating Tennessee back in the day. Yeah. Oh, it's exactly right. Or, or beating UConn back I was going to say, day. it's like beating UConn, who has <laughs> traditionally been the thorn in the side of Notre Dame as a program. Muffet McGraw and, and we know Gino Auriemma both not 
they don't like each other. That has been a very, yes. very uh, big rivalry full of a lot of animosity. And so for Coach they Ivy, who's not. in her third year at the helm for this team, it was her first non-conference win over a top three team since taking over. Uh, they had beaten – I'm sorry, they Damn. beat NC State – uh, excuse me, I take that back. They beat number three NC State in ACC play in February mm. and then all, almost beat them again in the Sweet 16 in March. So they did beat them in ACC play inside the conference. But congrats to Coach Ivy. I always, as a kid that grew up in Connecticut, I remember when Notre Dame won that title in 01 and I walked into my elementary school that was full of UConn fans dressed like the leprechaun, peacocking all over the place. So the women's basketball <laughs> team has given me a lot to celebrate over the years. That title run on Amen. In 18 was magic, and I love seeing them go out there and get that dub. We also think you're magic. And if you made it all the way through an extra long Monday podcast, we appreciate you even more. Make sure you download, subscribe, rate, review, go to wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. More of you have been doing that, and I love you for it. So keep that up. Yes. And check us out and subscribe to the DraftKings YouTube channel. Go check out our videos under the Gojo with Michael Jr. playlist. Thank you so much. Enjoy Monday Night Football. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.